to thank you for that encouragement. And he did his usual, (laughs) glorious, you know. God is good. Amen? Amen. Turn in your Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 14. We're going to attempt to get through a couple of chapters tonight. We're now journeying in Paul's mission adventures. And as we pick up in chapter 14, we're going to really kind of move through and on towards the second missionary journey, finishing up the first one. And by the time we get to chapter 19, you will have been through all of the missionary adventures of Paul as recorded in Scripture. But there's some wonderful things that happen here. And I think one of the the beauties of the book of Acts is it kind of puts in perspective really the cost of ministry, what what it is that we are here doing. And and you're going to see all you're going to see division. You're going to see delusion. You're going to see a stoning. Paul's going to and I don't mean with drugs. He's going to be stoned literally. You're going to see all these things that are a part of everyday ministry. Now, we don't have too many people drug out of church and stoned and left for dead. But what we do have is people who lose their families. We have people who are cut off from their support. We have people who lose their jobs. We have people who are castigated even in their own communities. We have all kinds of things that still really are the cost of following hard after Jesus. And I think it's such a beautiful picture of how the Lord still maintains really the same witness in the world because there is a cost to being a follower of Christ. There are are costs that we pay that the world doesn't even realize what we're talking about. You know, as I was sharing, I, I saw just today, and it was a report actually from a decision yesterday from the Ninth Circuit Court here in California. I am a San Diego native. I was born in Escondido in San Diego County. I grew up in San Diego County, went all the way through high school and into college in San Diego County. And uh, I was a beach bum. I, you know, spent time down in Mission Beach and Pacific Beach and all over San Diego. And my mom was actually one of the original families from La Jolla, and so I'm very familiar with that area. And if you know the San Diego area, as you come down the five and you drop down into the Mission Bay area, off to your right side as you're going south, there is a huge cross on top of Mount Soledad. That is a memorial to the to the World War, the Second World War specifically. And it was put up there so that people could see from really anywhere in San Diego uh, the price that was paid uh, for us to to really gain the freedom that we have, and that it was largely a war that was fought to save Europe from the ravages of the Nazi regime and Hitler. We had nothing to gain. It, it's staggering to me when you think of the losses that the U.S. incurred in the Second World War. It, we had nothing to gain. Matter of fact, we waited from some people's perspective, a little too long to get engaged. But there's a monument, and there's a very tall cross up there. It's about 65 feet tall. Um, That has been declared unconstitutional by our Ninth Circuit Court. And it is now being debated as to whether they're going to allow that ruling to just be the ruling or whether it's going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I would remind you that the U.S. Supreme Court's already ruled in favor of kicking out things like reading the 91st Psalm uh, in school. They've already you know, decided that it would be better to read about Wicca or something like that as opposed to read the Scriptures. So we're starting to see a similar situation occur in our nation that we haven't seen in a very long time. 
that there are a lot of people in this country that are hostile to the gospel message. They're hostile to the word of the Lord. I read another article today as I was scanning the news. I told you I'm a news junkie. It's, I admit it. I confess it to you. It's okay. You can pray for me. I'll be healed. Me and Andrew. Uh, but as we're, you know, as I was reading through it, the, the religious complexion of, of the new incoming Congress, it's 58% Protestant evangelical. 58%. So almost 60% of the representatives in, in the House are, in essence, Bible-believing Christians. But you know what's really crazy? As you know, the things that have grown are basically cults. The number of Mormons in Congress has gone up. The number of Buddhists has gone up. There's all kinds of this supposed diversity, and we're starting to see things happening in our country that were unheard of even 40, 50 years ago. Things that just simply didn't happen. We still only have two Muslims, by the way. That it is important that we put these things into a modern context because we're not immune. It may come down to, just as it is in China, just as it is in Indonesia, that it may cost us something to proclaim the name of Christ. Are we willing to pay it? And so as we journey along here in part two of Paul's mission, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father God, as we... Oh, Lord, we're so blessed. We really are so blessed. Lord, we're, we're here and able to freely worship you and to sing your praises. And we have this beautiful building to do it in, Lord, this precious body of believers that's gathered together tonight just as family. We pray that you would just anoint your word and bless us as we receive it. Would we take it in as you, Jesus, declared it was? It's bread. Lord, it is literal spiritual nourishment to us. And we pray that we would just be nourished tonight, strengthened, encouraged, blessed, and built up. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. And now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke to that great multitude of both Jews and Greeks uh, of those who believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And so we begin to see how division happens. This is, in essence, in a congregation. And you can only imagine if there's division that's able to be stirred up within the church, what happens when you're outside of the church. It obviously is worse. And so here comes the division from within inside. And so they're stirred up. They poisoned their minds against the brethren. Brothers and sisters, this still occurs. We still have division. We have things that go on even within this church to where people will start their own little clique or they'll begin to try and gather an army for a particular viewpoint. We have to guard ourselves. And, and I don't mean in the sense of a warring army, but in a sense of wisdom. We have to guard ourselves as to what we take in, what we allow to be said in our presence, what we then verify and validate by not having an opinion that that absence of an opinion is often considered a condemnation of what, or a commendation, rather, of what's been said. And so here the division begins, and therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders that were done by their hands. And so they begin to really pour out their lives into the ministry here in this church in Iconium, but yet all along it's not easy. They're, they're, they're doing these things, but they're fraught with some danger. But notice that what they're preaching. They're preaching the word of grace. 
They're not preaching Paul. They're not preaching Barnabas. They're not preaching the disciples or the apostles. They're preaching the word of grace. They're reminding these people that come from a very diverse religious background that it is grace that saves It is the grace of God that brings men to repentance. It's the grace of God that assures our salvation. It is God's unmerited favor that falls upon mankind through the blood of Christ that will save us from our sin. That's what they're preaching. And it's really interesting to me that if you have a church, and you know, if we just decided we wanted to start some big church down in San Bernardino, as long as we don't preach the word of grace... I can pretty much guarantee you we're going to make a lot of people really happy. People reject the gospel message because it is so narrow. It's not wide. It's not broad. It it is something that causes an offense, just as Jesus said it would. You, You see, the gospel message, being what it is, always stirs up division. I get more ugly comments from things... Like when I say, there aren't going to be any Buddhists in heaven. There aren't going to be any Hindus in heaven. There aren't going to be any Muslims in heaven. And of course, when I say that, what I'm talking about is people who religiously practice that faith and die in that faith. If they have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will die in their sins and they will perish eternally. Now, that's a message that makes a lot of people mad. Now, remember where they are. They're in Asia Minor. They're in a Greek province, in essence, of Rome. And they're speaking to a bunch of people. Well, you know, we've been told all along that Zeus and and his gang, they're on Mount Olympus, or the way that we find favor with the gods, plural. And now all of a sudden they're saying that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me? You can imagine the division that ensues. It's the same. It's the same conversation that you have when you step up to the lunch table and you open up your Bible and people ask you what you're doing and tell them you're reading your Bible. What's in it? Well, it's God's plan of salvation for mankind. It's the scarlet thread of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. It tells us that Jesus Christ came to this world to save this world from its sin. When you say that, you get everybody mad. Now, if you just tell them that you're reading about God, they're cool with that. Tell them you're reading about virtue. They're really cool with that. I'm reading on how to become a better person. Oh, can I read about that? Anything but the gospel message. They're preaching the gospel message. And to verify it, God is granting them at this time signs and wonders to validate that the message is true. The early church was filled with that. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. Do you know why that is? People love religion. They love religion. They, they love church, in essence. They're in love with the idea of church. But what they're not in love with is the idea that they have a personal accountability to their God who created them. That part, not so good. Because that means that that God is also intervening in their lives in the here and now. He's not just some thought or some ethereal process that exists in the heavens that no longer has his hand, kind of like Zeus is in Greek mythology. 
You know, he just sits there on Mount Olympus and every once in a while he barbecues somebody because he doesn't like them. A lot of people feel about religion that way. They like the religious aspect of it. They can kind of put it on a shelf and they leave it there. And when they feel like playing with it, they take it out almost like a toy. So you have the division between the apostles preaching Christ and the grace of God and the Jews, in essence, preaching religion. You know, we've been around for a couple thousand years at this point in time. God gave us the temple. God gave us all of these wonderful signs. He gave us the law. And these guys are saying the law was all fulfilled in Christ. These guys are saying you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. You can imagine the division. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe and the cities of Lyconia and the surrounding region. And there they were preaching the gospel. You see, there comes a point in time when the message is no longer received. And in fact, it's actually dangerous to continue. Uh, sometimes I get the question, you know, why don't people, you know, just keeping, keep preaching until, you know, somebody, you know, eventually stops them from doing that? Because it's fruitless. Jesus put it this way. He said, don't cast your pearl before your pearls, plural, before swine. He said, ultimately, that message isn't being received. It's time to move on and go preach that message someplace where it's going to do some good. It, you're not going to get anything out of a group of people who are ranting and raving and hucking stones at you. That's why I put it this way. I said, because I've experienced this myself in my own young Christian life, I decided it would be cool. You know, we were going we to go after the hard people. I'm 18 years old. I've got my Bible tucked under my arm. My friend Ed and I decide that we're going to go preach the gospel. We're working on our God and Country Award for Boy Scouts, and we're just about done. We're almost out, and, and we're going to go save the world. So we decide two places where there's lots of sinners. One is a bar, and the other is a massage parlor. Can I tell you, we were very ineffective in both places. You know, because you walk into a bar with your Bible, you're either going to get beat up or laughed out, one of the two. And a massage parlor is pretty much worse than that. So you, 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 you are not going someplace with the ability really to receive because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And unless the spirit's moved in that person's life, they're not ready to receive it. And so, so be careful. When God moves you on, just move on and keep preaching. Don't, don't keep throwing the pearls out there where they're not being received. And he goes on in verse 8, and we're going to see now the division and the delusion that happens in people's mind uh, as this story begins to unfold here in the next ten verses or so. In verse 8, And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, and a cripple, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And so we have this man who's completely lame. He, he can't move at all. And this man heard Paul speaking, and Paul observed him intently, seeing that he had faith to be healed. Notice the condition there. He needed to have faith to be healed. He was ready to receive it. They had just left a place where they had no faith. They weren't going to receive it. There was nothing happening there. And here this man who obviously has been stirred in his spirit to receive that word of faith that's being passed to him by the Apostle Paul. Paul knew that, and he said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped, and he walked. And so here 
both Peter and Paul, this happens to be Paul's account, uh, begin to heal people that had, that had been lame from birth. Now, this was not something that was contestable. I mean, yes, this guy had been there for a long time. He was well known to be a lame man. He sat there and begged, and all of a sudden, this cure that was given to him could not be confused with anything else. Because Paul said nothing else. He didn't offer him a glass of water. He didn't give him a couple of berries off some special tree. He said, get up and walk. God works in miraculous ways still in this world. God still heals. God still touches people's lives. The account that we have here is somewhat rare. I believe that it does happen uh, far more frequently in developing nations where the word of the Lord is not widely known. And and very often you'll see things like this in sub-Saharan Africa or in Latin America, especially in the Amazon where you're reaching people for the first time or in the islands of New Guinea where you have all these little tiny tribes, hundreds of them that all speak different languages. And all of a sudden, God will have a miracle like this that will happen and it will testify to his strength, his power. That the words that are being spoken are true. And so as he speaks this, it's interesting, the word that's translated here, hearing Paul speaking, the word speak there that's translated, means ordinary conversation. In other words, Paul was living, breathing, eating, sleeping Jesus. He was just simply talking about the Lord. Family of God, that's all it takes. People come to me very often and say, well, I don't know how to lead somebody to Christ. You just talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about what he's done in your life. What you do know. You don't have to tell them what you don't know. You don't have to share, you know, multiple hundreds of different Bible verses. You do not have to have a set out plan. The Holy Spirit will work in you to will and to do as his good pleasure is. And, and all of a sudden you're saying things to him. You don't even know where they come from. You're just speaking. And all of a sudden they're receiving because the Spirit's moved in their life. And so the crippled man's response to this word of grace, because that's what's being preached, is the word of grace, the word of the Lord, you know, get up and walk. His response is he gets up and walk. It brought faith. It brought healing. But I want you to notice something. The same message received by different people produces different results. It depends on the hearer. The word of God, Isaiah 55 says, goes and it does what it wills. It accomplishes that for which it is sent. In other words, it goes out and does its job. It's up to us to receive it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And unless you believe and receive that which is being spoken to you, it can produce a completely different result. Matter of fact, it can actually produce a hardened heart. Someone who doesn't want to hear the word of the Lord and shuts their mind out to it actually becomes harder when that happens. They become sealed to the work of the Spirit in their life because they've heard the truth and they've rejected it. Notice what happens now in verse 11. And now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, probably some form of Greek, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Notice how they all of a sudden, they're not thinking grace that saves. They're not thinking the grace of God that's working in this crippled man's life. They're thinking... You know, Zeus came down. Notice what it says. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, uh, the messenger, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garland to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And so here they are. 
they see exactly the same thing. They hear exactly the same thing as the lame man, but their response is, the gods have come down to us. Because they didn't receive it by faith. They weren't hearing it with spiritual ears. They were seeing it thinking, wow, you know, I wonder what he'll give us. If we go talk to Zeus and we go talk to Hermes, he'll do some good things for us. We'll go down and sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, who now they think are Zeus and Hermes. People very often respond to the gospel message by, gee, I wonder what I can get out of it. That isn't faith. That's the same thing that happens when kids come to you and they are nice to you when it's around Christmas time. Or it's near the birthday, and all of a sudden the laundry is in the laundry basket. Yeah, faith is what produces the fruit from those words that are being spoken. And so here, they don't get it at all. Crowd's response to the crippled man, they see him and they completely miss it. Now notice the apostles' response to the crowd's response. It's kind of cool how this whole thing links together. Verse 14, but when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul heard this. They tore their clothes and ran among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? The crippled man's healed by faith. The multitude thinks they're going to worship Paul and Barnabas because they must have some special kind of deal they got from Zeus and Hermes. They, the crowd has missed it. The one guy got it. And Paul said, We preached the same message to the whole crowd, and we got all this different result. Tell me of God, not everybody comes to Christ at once. That's why when you go to a large evangelical event, you go to a crusade or something, it's not everybody that gets up that needs to be saved. Matter of fact, some people are still glued to their seats mocking what's being said. You know, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe that people are sitting here for two and a half hours to listen to this. I have sat next to people like that. I don't want to hear it. And so Paul and Barnabas said, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Now, that's a way to really make friends. You know, the gods have come down from Mount Olympus and here the priests of the temple of Zeus have come. They're going to offer up a sacrifice for Paul and Barnabas, whom they think are Zeus and Hermes, and they're saying, You guys are nuts. You've lost it. That's not what we're about. We're not here to promote ourselves. That's the message. The words I speak to you are not from death. Do I study? Yes. But I just study God's Word. And it's not a message that I made up. It's a message that's contained within these words that is spoken to you as a church. They're not about me. I don't have any special power. It's sometimes almost humorous when people come in and they want me to do something for them. You know, like I have some special kind of thing I just keep behind my desk and I pull it out and, okay, you got a problem, so fix it. It doesn't work that way. You have to have faith coupled with the hearing of the word in order to receive from the Lord. And he says these things are useless to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are in him, who in bygone generations allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He said the only reason you guys are even here is because God's let you do it. He, he has just continued to suffer along with mankind. And nevertheless, 
He did not leave himself without a witness. In that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with goodness and food of gladness. He said in all the dumb things that mankind has ever done that's looked really religious and, and some to some of you, they're your way of life. He said God simply allowed those things to happen and he's reigned in essence as scripture declares on the just and the unjust. He's been providentially good to everybody. He didn't take you out. He gave you a whole lifetime. Never mistake the fact that God hasn't acted on sin is that he doesn't care. That's usually just his grace that's being extended. He's waiting for people to repent, to get the right message. And so he left himself with a witness. Matter of fact, it was put this way by Jesus. He said, if we don't preach the word, the disciples echoed along with him, and the rocks and the trees will cry out. God will have his witness. He always has his remnant. And so he says, verse 18, And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. They're telling them, it's not me, it's about the Lord, it isn't the fact we healed the guy, we don't have any power in and of ourselves, it's the Creator God who made you, who offers this gift of grace, that's what we're about, and they're still trying to sacrifice to Paul and to Barnabas. People very often don't get it. And then the Jews from Antioch, And Iconium came there, having persuaded the multitude. So they've traveled that 16 miles between the two cities. They basically have followed Paul to where he goes to. And now he says, well, we couldn't do anything to him there. We almost got him there. We'll go and we'll follow him there. We'll make sure that he finally gets stoned. And that's exactly what happens. Persuade the multitudes. They start up the the same division that we saw at the beginning of this chapter. They stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Now, that's what you call 100% dedication. Now, I can tell you, I've never, you know, not ever have I been threatened to be stoned. I've been shouted down a few times. I've had a few things, especially down in Brazil. I was doing a couple of things outdoors. And, you know, you get the hecklers. We had a lady that stood up in church one Sunday morning and pronounced that I was going to go blind. As you can see, that didn't happen. Still here. But Paul got stoned. He looked like he was dead. Knocked unconscious. They drag him out of the city. Now, wouldn't it have been easier? Think about this for a second. I've always, when I've read this passage, there's always one thing that's really stuck out to me. How easy do you think it would have been for Paul to just simply receive that praise? Yep, I'm great. I'm cool. I'm, uh, yep, bring me your crippled guys. I can heal them. Going to have a healing service uh, right after this. Matter of fact, I'm kind of part Jesus, part Zeus. It would have been easier, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it have been easier to say the politically expedient thing? To say what would have caused the least amount of trouble? Look at this boldness. He spoke the message having already been threatened with being stoned. The same guys come, cause the same division with more people, with a greater impact on the crowd, and now he actually gets stoned because he refuses to change the message. Heavenly yeah, God, I think that this, this not maybe in this fashion, but I think maybe in the sense of pastors being removed from their pulpits, churches losing their tax-exempt status, I think things may be coming down the pike this way, even here in this country. 
to where it's going to cost you to preach the gospel message, to where you're going to have to risk something to speak the word of the Lord, the message of grace. Verse 20 goes on, now the disciples' response to Paul. You get all these responses, same message, all the stuff's going on, and they keep, you know, each crowd kind of has a little bit different response to it. And however, when the disciples gathered around him, notice this, they didn't abandon him, they didn't take off, they didn't flee. We're not told the crowd was gone, they just drug him out of the city, the crowd's still there, they throw him out on the ground, he looks like he's dead, the disciples gather around him, he rose up and went back into the city. He said, that isn't going to stop me. What, a few rocks? Now, we don't know exactly what happened to him. There are some who believe, some of the early church historians believe that this may have been when Paul received his thorn in the flesh. That it was, in fact, this stoning that caused him to have some problems, either cognitively or with his vision. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a stoning. I've actually seen one on YouTube. It was in an Arab country where they actually stoned someone. It is not a... That it is horrific. I can't even imagine that happening to a human being. So Paul gets up, he goes back into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So he says, you know what, that's not going to dissuade me. I'm going to go back into the city, I'll get prepared, and I'll once again move on. And so he moves to the next city, on to Antioch in Syria. And when they had preached, verse 21 says, the gospel in that city They made many disciples and turned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So you'll notice he's kind of making a circuit of these three cities. He will actually visit two of these three cities three times. He's just kind of making a little circuit. He goes back, he preaches the message, kind of gets people stirred up with the gospel. He goes on to another city, kind of comes back to find out how things are going. He's checking in on the fruit. He's finding out what's happening with the people. And in strengthening the souls of the disciples, I love this. Now, sometimes when, when you look, when I was talking to Pastor Chuck yesterday, if you've been listening to him on the radio, you know, he's, he's 84 years old. He's just had a major radical back surgery. He's home, you know, recuperating, and he's going back in the pulpit on Sunday. It's crazy. You know, you would think, well, it's kind of time to retire. You know, it's, it's time to sail off into the sunset. I was talking to him. He's like a kid. He goes, yeah, I think I can, I can teach if I, you know, maybe sit down while I'm teaching. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, lay down while you're teaching or whatever. It's like, you know, you've done enough. Go away and, you know, enjoy your last few years and, you know, let's pray for the rapture. We'll all go together. But here he was strengthening the souls of the disciples. It's so wonderful when someone who's older in the faith, someone who's discipled so many, I will never know what God's done through Calvary Chapel. We'll just simply never know. But I can tell you this, there's over 1,800 Calvary Chapels in the world. And some of them are exceed 10,000 people. So there, there's a lot of folks that have been affected, and who knows how many have moved on and gone to other churches and ministries, but the impact has been huge. But here's the guy that could be resting on his laurels and writing books and sitting on a beach someplace. Uh, he wants to get back in the saddle. That's the mark that the message is the important part, not the messenger. And he says, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Man, that's not a phrase you hear very often in the church, is it? 
We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Are, are we willing to do the hard thing? Are, are we willing to go out on a limb for the Lord? He went on a tree for you. Are we willing to go out on a limb for him? You know, he, he, he fulfilled that which Scripture reminds us, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He took the curse of sin and death upon himself. And yet when it comes down to that person asking you about Jesus, it's like, oh, you know, I kind of believe in God. And I'm not trying to point any fingers or make anybody feel bad about their witness. But I think when it comes to suffering and tribulation, I don't even know that we even know what that's like. You know, it doesn't cost us much to be a Christian here in this country. Maybe we can do a little better in that area. I know I can and so when they had appointed elders in every church, in other words, these three places, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they prayed with fasting and commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so all these people first became believers in Christ, and then they were appointed unto the work of the ministry. They were left in those cities. And after they passed through Peseda and they came to Pamphylia, now that's a very swampy area. This is another place that, interestingly in history, uh, the writer Flavius Josephus, early, early church historian, um, Justin Martyr, also said much the same thing. They believe that this is where Paul probably picked up his eye disease that's widely believed to be the cause of the problem that he had that caused him to write with such very large letters as he signed his, some of his uh, letters to us, that he actually had some problems with his eyes and that may well have been the thorn in his flesh. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they came to Atelia, and there they sailed to Antioch, so they're now on the coast of modern-day Turkey and Greece, and where they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And so, again, you see the emphasis on the grace of God as they continue to move around. And now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done to them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and so they stayed there for a long time with the disciples. So they begin to have kind of a missionary meeting. They go to these cities several times. They minister in each one of them. They come back through. They kind of find out what God is doing. This is really a model for church growth, and it's one that we try and hold to, especially throughout Calvary Chapel. One of the things that we do is we go and we plant churches, we minister to specific people there in leadership. We hand that off to them, and then we go back and visit. One of the reasons I traveled to Brazil is to do that exact thing. We have several people down there that came to Christ. We have ministered to them and with them. We have, in essence, turned over the ministry to them, a lot of them young guys. When I think of Chago, he's 26 years old, and he's pastoring a church of a couple hundred people. You know, he's a guy that doesn't have a lot of formal training. I've sent him messages and outlines, and he's taken all those things and studied and shown himself an approved workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. And as we do that, we go back and encourage him. We send him financial help. We minister to that body so that they can continue to do the work of the ministry. The church is not confined to four walls. The church is the body of Christ. It's people everywhere. And, and if leadership grasps this, then part of my responsibility is to make sure that we're tending to the sheep that we've sent out, ministering to those whom God has raised up 
through the ministry here. And so several things here. First, they preached the Gospels. In other words, they taught other people how to teach. Uh, We do that. It's important that we do not stagnate. The ministry is made up of people. It's not made up of a system. Does everybody understand that? We're not a system of religion. We are a ministry that's built on the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached. And so to do that, we need to get other people preaching. You all preach. I preach. We preach. We give the message of grace to those who will hear. Now, the second thing is they strengthened, or or in other words, really confirmed the believers in the things of Christ. They exhorted them. They encouraged them. They came alongside. They probably straightened out their doctrine. They reminded them, no, you kind of really don't want to tell them that because that's not exactly what Scripture says. Bear in mind, at this point in time, they don't have Bibles they're lugging around. These letters that we're reading are the letters that were being passed to churches. We're in two of them from this region on Sunday, First and Second Thessalonians, written to, the, written to this region of the world. And so those letters were just being circulated. And so it was literally the oral preaching of God's word. It said, okay, here's the message. Now you go and share that message with them. The anointing of the Spirit being upon them. Uh, and then God doing miracles, in essence, to validate it. And so the Christian life was being passed along that way. The third thing they did is they actually organized groups of people. Very important that we understand a church is a place for other churches to be birthed. It's not supposed to be a stagnant thing that worries about itself. It's supposed to be a living organism, if you will, that grows. And we send somebody out and they start a work and that work grows. That's how we would reach everybody. The gospel is supposed to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. It doesn't do that if we all sit around and get, uh, if, if you'll excuse, excuse the phrase, we get spiritually fat. You know, we're not supposed to just say, oh man, I feel good in Jesus. If you don't feel a little uncomfortable in Jesus every once in a while, there's probably something wrong with your walk. That means you're not being challenged. Means you're not doing anything new. Means you're not moving beyond your comfort boundaries. It's the same thing as if you sit there at the dinner table on Christmas or Thanksgiving. We're having these huge feasts and, you know, you get done and then you just eat pie for the next four days. You know, you, eventually you just, it doesn't do you any good. You gotta make sure that you're passing along those things that we have learned. And then finally you see these guys coming back and they're actually reporting to the sending church. We had George Anitsu on Sunday. I met George 23 years ago in what was still then Yugoslavia. It was, it was not Hungary. It was not part of the Czech Republic. It was not Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro, Kosovo. It was still Yugoslavia. What a joy to see how God's working there and doing work still from a silly group of people that we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We just got told, well, we want you guys to go to Yugoslavia. Okay. What are we supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to win people to Christ. That happened. That fruit still remains. Praise the Lord. So the message is send the gospel of grace and then get out of the way. Let God do what he wants to do. Sometimes I think the church becomes a hindrance to church, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, you you don't have to have special permission to win people to Jesus. You do not have to call me and go, I'm going to lead a guy to Christ. Can you, you know, can can I have a blessing? (laughs) Just go do it. 
And then when they come back a few years later and they're walking with Jesus, you can just have a big smile on your face knowing that you had an input into that person's spiritual growth. It's the way the church is supposed to function. Chapter 15, now we'll see how this goes. And now there's some disputes that rise up. Whenever God's doing something, you can pretty much count on the enemy rising up to come against it. And wherever there's good things going on for the Lord, the devil's not going to be happy. He's going to come back at us. Then certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so now here come the Judaizers. These are the guys that Paul would write the letter to the church of Galatia. Okay, these are the Galatians. They come down and they're, they're now going to spread this message. Well, you know, this grace thing's great, but you better be a Jew too. It's Jesus and whatever. And you can throw in Jesus and whatever that you like. The bottom line is, is it's Jesus and nothing. It's for by grace you've been saved through faith. That is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. None of us can boast in it. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those truths contained in the gospel message are singular truths. They point to one Lord in whom we are to have faith, and that one Lord, that one faith, that one baptism, there's only one Lord over all. That's it. Church is made up of those who have proclaimed the name of Jesus. It's not, well, you need to belong to our church. It's not, we have some special license from God. We have this class, and if you go through it, then you're really a Christian. You you can have all kinds of things that could be put into a modern context here. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they had determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders and ask about this question. And so they're calling the first missions conference. They're sending everybody back to Jerusalem. We're going to go dispute this. It's time we got to, we got to have some kind of a conference here and get together. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused a great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, so these are Christians who originally were Pharisees. Now understand that, because it's extremely important. These are Christians who used to be Pharisees. So some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. It's Jesus and circumcision and the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, that makes it not grace. If it's Jesus and anything, then it's not grace. Now, is the law good? Absolutely. Is there anything wrong with circumcision? No. But neither of those two things are essential to salvation. Neither of those two things will get you any closer to the Lord than you could get by pure grace. There are people who don't even know the law that are probably going to have a higher place in the ranking of heaven than I will because their childlike faith has brought them near to the Lord. And maybe they've never really even struggled with sin. I I sometimes often think of... You know, peoples that have lived in remote parts of the earth that have really never been affected by all the things that have infected our minds. Can you imagine how pure their faith is when they actually receive the gospel message and they don't have anything to foul it up? I can guarantee you, 
I know a lot of scripture. I've read a lot of books. There are times when my theology is just like, well, do I really believe because of so-and-so? You know, John Stott wrote this, and R.C. Sproul wrote that, and Chuck Smith wrote this, and Warren Worsby wrote that, and John Phillips wrote this. And I go through all these things, and he said this, and man, I don't know what to think. I'm lost. You know, after a while, it boils down to me and Jesus and grace. That's it. It's just me and Jesus and grace. I, I may not be able to convince everybody that there's going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. I may not be able to convince everybody that, you know, unfortunately, you don't like it, there is a real hell and people will end up there. People don't like that. We're going to look at that on Sunday. That's not a message people like to hear. But it's a message that's preached. Because if there's no hell, then we haven't been saved. We got saved from the wrath of God, from the penalty of our sin, which is death and hell. There isn't one, then it's all a farce, it's a lie. If everybody automatically goes to heaven, or if we just simply cease to exist, God lied to us. Because there's no reason to be saved. Jesus said, you need to be saved, you need to be born again. So there must be something we're saved from. You see, there's lots of things that we may not quite understand. That's why you're saved by grace, not what you know about the last days. Not what you know about the millennial reign of Christ. Not that you are the one person on the face of the earth who actually knows the real identity of the Antichrist. You're not saved because of that. You're not saved because you memorized the books of the Bible. You're not saved because you can write the Ten Commandments backward in Latin. You're saved because of grace. That's all. And so here the legalistic Jewish teachers come and they begin to preach another gospel. And it's just simply Christ plus nothing. And so that's the debate. They go on now and picking up in verse 6. There apparently are about four different meetings that kind of take place in this chapter. There's going to be one that's with Paul and his associates, another one that's kind of private with the leaders, and then these Judaizers, and then kind of the public discussion of all this. Now, verse 6, And now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Peter basically begins to review the past with them. He said, Guys, we've been down this road before. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the mouth of the Gentiles we should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about Pentecost. Now, by this time, that may be as much as 20 years earlier. It was a long time ago for them. They've been wandering around preaching the gospel for a while. And he says, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. So he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He said he didn't make any distinction. He said there wasn't a different way for Gentiles to get saved than there was for the Jews to get saved. I love that. Because if there's a different way, then I say to you there isn't a way at all. Because if there's a different way, mankind can mess it up. Amen? Think about this. for just. Have you ever pondered this? If we can mess up grace, how badly do you think we can mess up anything else that's grace plus something? Can you imagine how bad we can mess it? We do mess that up. That's what religion is. Grace is simply God's unmerited favor. It is Christ basically paying the price for us 
so that we do not have to pay the price ourselves. It's free. And people can't even get grace right. Can you imagine if it were the Ten Commandments? You shall love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Most of us would fail by the time we got to that point. Because how many of us have had gods that are, you know, cars or wives or girlfriends or houses or jobs or whatever, that which you worship, that which you invest your time, talent, and treasure in? That's your God. I'm glad it's not the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Ow! I've got to keep that and I've got to have grace. Covetousness and grace, we could just boil it down to one commandment. We couldn't keep that one. He says, You would hear the word of the Lord and the gospel and believe. And so God knows the heart and acknowledge Him by the Holy Spirit just as He did us. He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Simple faith. Not a letter of recommendation from five people. Not some committee. Not some church membership process. Not a name tag. Not a special seat. Not a parking space. Faith. And now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Don't you love that? So we couldn't keep the law when all we had was the law. We couldn't keep the Ten Commandments when that was the sum and the substance of what we needed to do. Why would you want to add anything to grace is basically what he's saying. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. You see, grace is the great unifier. It's the one thing that leaps across the boundaries of race and creed and intellect, of social status, of monetary provision, of geography. Grace jumps across all those things. Nothing else can. I, I can tell you from speaking some foreign language myself, when I try and communicate in a foreign language, like if I'm speaking to somebody in my lousy Brazilian Portuguese or German or Spanish, when I'm trying to do that in a language that I don't understand, I will never get anybody the real gospel message with my broken foreign languages. Now imagine that it were more complex than that, that you're actually trying to communicate the heart of God. We need to keep it simple. If we make it complex, there'll be people that can't understand it in their own language, much less some broken message that comes from a broken vessel. The law was given to the Jewish people. It was to save them from the evils of the Gentile world and prepare them for the Messiah. But the law could never purify the sinner's heart. That's why they had all the sacrifices. Do you remember the sacrificial system? Every single year there was a Yom Kippur. There was a Day of Atonement. And there was a scapegoat. And the priest would put his hands on the head of that goat and confess the sins of the people. And that goat would be released. And then there was one that would also be slaughtered. It would lose its life. And every year they did the same thing over and over again. And every family offering up their own animal for their own. Nothing was ever settled. 
And then came Jesus. Praise God. Yeah, what a horrible thing it would have been to live under that Old Testament sacrificial system. I would have been in fear of my eternal soul every day. That's why the Pharisees very often walked with their heads down. They didn't want to sin inadvertently. They were walking like this, you know, I might see something I'm not supposed to see. I imagine that was still going on in our world. You can't even go across to the village market without seeing something you shouldn't see. It's like, and it's icy. Something you might want to see would be a car coming at you. Part. So here they remind them of what the past did for them. They weren't saved then. They, they weren't any better off then. Verse 12, And then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders of God had been worked through them among the Gentiles. Uh, as Luke summarizes these things and kind of gives us a little view of it, what he's really reminding us is that as those things happened, they were in essence proof positive to anyone who wanted to see it. Is not your life in Christ Jesus proof positive to those who want to see it? How many of us, and it's all of us, if you walk with the Lord for any length of time at all, you know somebody who knows the way you used to be. You know somebody who knows what manner of life you used to live. And apart from the explanation that Jesus Christ is now your Lord, there is no explanation. When people talk to me, I, you know, I'm just a Jesus freak. That's why I'm not the way I used to be. I just love the Lord, and the Lord loves me, and he's healed me of all kinds of crazy stuff. And that's why I am what I am today. It's miraculous. There's no other explanation for it. I didn't go to a 12-step program. I, I never spent any time in rehab. I could save Lindsay Lohan a lot of money if she just received the gospel. Uh, who knows what you could do with what she spent on rehab. You, you see, God can do those kind of things and still does those kind of things. We'll end with this next section here, verse 13 to 18, and we'll pick up the rest next week. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying to them, Men and brethren, listen to me. So you kind of have the disciples going back and forth, just letting it fly with both barrels. So you got Peter taken into the past. James is going to relate it all to the future. Simon has declared, he's talking of Peter now, has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take them out of the people for his name. And so here the Gentiles are in the midst of the Jewish people. God's plan was to save them. They wouldn't receive the message. So the Gentiles now receive the message of grace, and it comes to them. And with the, this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, For after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who do all these things, known to God from eternity, are all of his works. And so, James, this is the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the epistle James, now speaks out and is all these guys, he says, you know what, Our, we're, we're all believing the same thing. This part of this body that we have joined into and been called a part of, this is the same one that's going to end the world as we know it. That, that mystery program that was revealed in part to the Jewish people has been revealed in fullness and grace 
to the Gentile world, and we're all getting to heaven the same way. This is the great stumbling block to the Jewish people to this day. Because they are still God's chosen people, they're still largely ignorant of the gospel of grace. But one day when the Lord returns with the trumpet, when the Lord comes back that final time to fight the battle of Armageddon as the tribulation comes to an end, and all the Jewish people see their Messiah, we're all going to be equalized, if you will, by what the Lord has done by his grace. And so here they put forth what will be the future, that God's going to eventually bring everybody together the same way. Uh, the rise of that glorious kingdom uh, will one day culminate in the Jewish people actually seeing their Messiah coming to Christ. And so crazy times for the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as they minister to all these different people and travel around and take the message. And it should be an encouragement to us, you know, some people receive it, some people don't, but don't change the message. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we want to just pray tonight that as we go about our way, Lord, as we have opportunity to speak of you and, Lord, encourage people in the gospel that you would make that time fruitful. Lord, do miracles in our midst. We, we pray that we would be different than the world, that the world would truly be able to see you in us and wonder Lord, what it is that's different, that then we would have the reason to give that account of the hope that lies within us. Lord, we are hopeful in you, Jesus. We thank you for this time tonight, and Lord, we pray that you would just bless us and fill us, anoint us, give us some divine appointments the rest of this week with people who need you. Lord, help us to be ready. We ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. We'll pick up next week in verse 19 as we continue our journey with the Apostle Paul and his crew.